So in our journey through Acts, we've continued to witness the risen Lord Jesus advance his kingdom. Despite various obstacles, uh, the gospel marches on. Conflict from within, conflict uh, from without, regardless of deception, demons, dictators, and even death, the purpose of the risen Lord Jesus to reach the ends of the earth with his grace is unstoppable. Last time we gathered, we read of more than 40 men who were vowing to kill Paul, uh, only they missed who's really in charge of the situation. The night before, the risen Jesus stood by Paul and he said, Take courage, Paul, for as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. If the risen Jesus says, You must, in the sense that such an event will necessarily occur, nothing is going to stand in his way. Step one in getting Paul to Rome was foiling the plots of the Jews. And the next step is Paul defending himself once again, uh, though this time before the governor Felix. This time we actually have a governor in an actual court with an actual prosecutor. And uh, then we have a uh, the charges brought and a formal defense. Now, I've mentioned this before, and I'll, I'll mention it again. Uh, p- part of Luke's goal is to vindicate uh, Paul before Rome. That's where Paul winds up in Acts 28. And while Paul uh, ministers in Rome, any authority could, could pick up and read Acts and see that Christianity was no direct threat. It wasn't a military movement. It wasn't a political revolt. It was right to let... The Christians keep preaching the gospel without government intrusion. But in the process, Luke also presents an example in Paul when governments do interfere. And that's very relevant to our situation. Quite, quite regularly, we, we read stories of other Christians on trial uh, in a Muslim country, uh, for instance, usually uh, for unjust reasons. Uh, we read stories of Christians being detained in China and charged with inciting subversion to the state power. For preaching Christ. And when we make disciples uh, of all nations, we have material here in Acts 24 they can learn from and that we can pray for them. But even closer to home, there there are ethical choices Christians make in which our own governments involve themselves, don't they? The more famous are cases that have come before the Supreme Court. Uh, Hobby Lobby's objection to the Affordable Care Act, which required employers to provide abortion-causing drugs for their employees. Masterpiece Cake Shop, refusing to bake a cake that celebrates a same-sex wedding. Recently, some of you have stood before authorities in your own workplace, explaining why your allegiance to Christ doesn't permit you to participate in certain policies affirming transgenderism. If we faithfully submit ourselves to Jesus' lordship in the public square, it won't be too long before authorities are demanding that we give a defense. And so Paul's situation before Felix becomes rather instructive for us. And I want to draw out several things we can learn from Paul's trial before uh, Felix. But before we get there, let's walk through the narrative in full. We'll stop here and there, make some observations on what's happening. The passage breaks down into three scenes. The charge brought the defense made, and the results with Felix. So let's look first at the charges brought against Paul. Verse 1. 
After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So in verse 1, we meet a man named Tertullus. He's a spokesman. The NASB says he's, he's, uh, he's an attorney. He's a silver-tongued lawyer. He's persuasive in speech, but he is corrupt in character. You almost get sick of the flattery in verse 2. It was common, you know, to open with a few words of respect. You know, Paul even does that in verse 10. But Tertullus also praises Felix for bringing peace and reforms for the Jews. Only by the time we get to the end of the chap- chapter, this, this is a corrupt ruler who seeks bribes and not justice. You can read about him also in, in extra, uh, extra biblical resources, that this is not a man who is uh, bringing peace into the world. So he's just going on with this flattery. And what kind of man then do we see is Tertullus? Well, he's a man who praises the corrupt. And denounces the innocent. He calls good evil and evil good. We see that he does, he denounces the innocent. He calls good evil by raising three charges against Paul. The first charge is sedition. Verse 5 We found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, Rome didn't care much about religious squabbles, but they cared a whole lot about people disrupting the peace and compromising the state's power. And that's why earlier in chapter 21, verse 38, you know, they get kind of alarmed and freak out because Paul could be this Egyptian revolutionary uh, back and he's going to start a revolt. Well, Tertullus makes that his first line of attack. He wants Felix to believe that Paul is a troublemaker and that his actions threaten the state's power. As readers, though, we know that couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, Paul was involved in a lot of, uh, of uh, riots, but never does he instigate them. The Jews did. In chapter 13, verse 50, the Jews incite devout women and leading men, stirring up persecution and driving Paul out. In chapter 14, verse 5, a mob of Jews nearly kills Paul. In chapter 17, verse 5, the Jews grow jealous and they take some of the worthless men of the city and they form a mob and they set the city in an uproar against Paul and then they do it again to him in the next city. And then two weeks prior to this trial here, the Jews instigate yet another riot against Paul. In chapter 21, verse 28. So Tertullus is twisting the truth in order to set Felix against Paul. His second charge is sectarianism. 
Verse 5, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal, except that Felix would have heard of Jesus of Nazareth, against whom was also brought the charge of treason. Before Pilate, the governor, right? And this is in Luke chapter 23, verse 2. The Jews charged Jesus before Pilate saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Felix might hear this and realize, I might have bigger problems on my hand after all, if that's true of Jesus and Paul, though it wasn't exactly. Yes, Christ was indeed king, the king of kings, but his kingdom didn't advance through political revolt and military might, which is what the Jews were trying to say. It advanced through truth, love, and self-sacrifice to spread joy in God's glory. Tertullus's final charge is sacrilege. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Again, with Israel and its worship protected under Roman law at the time, this becomes a big deal. Rome didn't look favorably on people disturbing the peace. He's accusing Paul of disturbing peace by acting against their precious temple. And this this additional charge uh, may have even given Felix a free pass here. All he'd have to do is hand Paul over to the Jews and they can deal with matters themselves. Some of your Bible translations may add verse 7 in brackets or in a footnote. Uh, We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. Now, the reason it's in a footnote or in brackets is because uh, the earliest manuscripts don't include these words. But even if the words were once present, they also don't change the meaning, do they? If anything, they show Tertullus twisting the story with more lies to cast the Jews in a favorable light as if they were working for Rome's advantage here. Well, the Jews then join in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And so you've got a corrupt governor, a silver-tongued liar, and a whole bunch of Jews affirming these charges are true. And Paul is all by himself. He has no defense attorney. No matlock. No witnesses. The odds are stacked against him. Nevertheless, the risen Lord Jesus emboldens Paul to speak and he stands firm in his testimony. And that brings us to the second scene here. The defense made by Paul. Paul opens with a positive word, but it's not one of flattery. Verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And then one by one, Paul works through the charges that were brought against him. And first, he clears himself of sedition. Verse 11. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they didn't find me disputing with anyone. We're stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. 
neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. In other words, these guys are making stuff up. He came to Jerusalem to worship. Not to start a revolt. He came peacefully. And you know what, Felix? You could go verify that because it wasn't but 12 days ago that I was there. Find anybody that was in Jerusalem 12 days ago and they could be my witnesses. Uh, Next, he clears himself of sectarianism. Also notice here, the Jews never presented any, any, any evidence. Paul's presenting all kinds of evidence. Go check it out. So the next thing he does is he clears himself of sectarianism. He doesn't do this by denouncing their charge outright, but watch what he does. He qualifies their charge. He's not part of a sect of Jews that's gone mad. He belongs to those Jews who are actually true to their God and true to their scriptures. Verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. He's saying... Christianity is not contrary to the hopes of Israel. Christianity confesses Jesus as the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. Paul isn't out to derail the Jews. He's out to announce that their Messiah has come. That their law and their prophets have been fulfilled. That Jesus has opened the way to worship God with a guilty conscience washed clean. That Jesus himself will bring the resurrection of the just and the unjust. These aren't contrary to Israel's faith. They're the culmination of Israel's faith. And then thirdly, he clears himself of sacrilege. Verse 17. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. So Paul cared for the poor in Jerusalem. He presented offerings. They found him purified. How much more Jewish could he be? So they've really got nothing on him. And then he adds one more piece to his defense, which turns the tables. Verse 18. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. In other words, can a real eyewitness please stand up? These guys weren't even there. Everything they're saying is hearsay. The Jews from Asia started the whole mess. I tell you what, why don't you let these guys charge me with something they actually did witness? That I cried out, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead, that I'm on trial 
before you this day. That's where Paul wants to go. He's steering this whole thing to the resurrection again. Not only does he defend his innocence, but he uses the whole situation to get back to the resurrection. And as we saw last time, that's his inroad to Christ. Because Christ is the firstborn from the dead. And so he's building that same inroad to the gospel and using the courtroom to run people to Jesus. So what's the fallout? Well, let's look at the results with Felix. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he would be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, interesting, and he was sent for, for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to, by Paul. And so he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had lapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Not exactly justice. Justice would mean Paul's freedom. He gets privileges tied with his Roman citizenship while he's in prison, but he doesn't get justice. And Felix is being crafty here. He knows Paul is innocent. Not only was Paul's defense pretty good, but Lysias, the tribune, already told him he was innocent. Back in chapter 23, verse 29. He can't punish Paul. But to release Paul would cause more headaches with the Jews. Even more, maybe he could use the situation to get something out of Paul. Like money. Maybe Paul will bribe him. And so he delays the verdict while giving Paul a few privileges, though he remains in prison. Paul, though, sees this not as a hindrance to the gospel. He uses it as an opportunity to share the gospel. Look at verse 24 again. Felix heard him speak about faith in Christ, Jesus, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Righteousness. The last time... Paul brought righteousness and judgment together was in his Areopagus address in chapter 17, verse 31, when he said that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And then even here in verse 15, we see that he mentions the resurrection of the just and the unjust, or the righteous and the unrighteous. Same vocabulary. Regardless of Felix's position and power, Paul doesn't flatter him and build up his ego. He preaches righteousness, doing what's right before the Lord. He preaches about self-control, which Felix doesn't have. Right? He's looking for bribes. He's pleasing Jews instead of executing justice. Even history books 
outside the Bible, like those by Suetonius and Tacitus, unanimously agree that Felix was corrupt, marrying three different queens, one of which he seduced to leave her husband. And yet Paul doesn't hesitate to preach self-control to this guy. And not only that, the coming judgment. Can you hear Paul? Felix, you don't have a righteousness that God requires of you. You don't have any self-control. And God will hold you accountable at the resurrection. Let me ask you a question. Who's really on trial here? The world may play around with all their own little trials. But the gospel puts everybody on trial. And that's what's Paul bringing to bear on Felix. The gospel puts everybody on trial before God's law and says, You're guilty and you need a savior. And that's why he goes on to tell Felix about his only hope. Verse 24, faith in Jesus Christ. As 1 Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel for Felix, and that's the gospel for you and me. We don't have a righteousness that God requires. We don't have the self-control needed to obtain this righteousness God requires. And there is coming a day of judgment, and we must give an account before our Lord. Our only escape is Jesus Christ, who took our sins and bore our punishment, who took our judgment for us, and then gave us the righteousness we need to stand before God justified, not guilty. Paul didn't fear Felix. Paul didn't cater to Felix's worship of money. Relentlessly, Paul set the gospel before Felix, even if that meant it kept him in prison another two years. So what does all this mean for us? Well, to begin, Paul's trial means that we should expect unjust treatment from those without Christ. We should expect unjust treatment from those without Christ. In our American context, Christians often act surprised when the world hates them. Like they're shocked by this, the culture's aversion to Christianity. Sometimes Christians get really angry about it too and have this attitude like, they can't do this to us. We're going to take our country back. But have we forgotten the words of our king? Our master, our lord, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Or 1 Peter chapter 4. 
Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Christ said it would be so, beloved. And therefore, let's not respond with shock and vitriol and panic. The world doesn't know any better. Let's respond with patient faithfulness as we see first in our Lord Jesus and then here in His Apostle. At the same time, renew your confidence in the Spirit to give us all we need before our enemies. Renew your confidence in the Spirit to give us all we need before our enemies. I once had a teacher ask me the following test question. Acts of the Apostles, Acts of Jesus Christ, or Acts of the Holy Spirit? Please explain. Well, the point was clear. It's not an either-or question. Because in the Acts of the Apostles, we see the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus by the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Right? And that couldn't be truer in Paul's defense right here. Listen to this from Luke chapter 12. Paul's giving a defense here, right? A defense. Look at Luke chapter 12, verses 11 to 12. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the Spirit at work in Paul. Or Luke chapter 21, verses 12 to 15. They will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogues and the prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors. That's Paul. Governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So the Holy Spirit will teach you, I will give you, that's Jesus' promise. So take courage as you see this promise actually coming to fruition in the life of Paul. Should the path of obedience bring you before authorities in a similar manner, the Holy Spirit will strengthen you and he will enable you to exalt Christ with what you say. You don't have to fret about tomorrow. Right? He will be with you, beloved, and we will speak boldly and powerfully in the Holy Spirit in those moments. He doesn't fail His people. Third, vindicating the gospel may require Christians to defend carefully their innocence. Vindicating the gospel may require Christians to defend carefully their innocence. Not talking about innocence with God here, talking about innocence between man, horizontal level. Paul must defend himself against false accusations. But the goal isn't so Paul gets off the hook. He doesn't defend his innocence for his own sake, to save his own skin. He defends his innocence for the gospel's sake. Okay? He doesn't want the gospel falsely associated with some guy stirring up political revolts. When that's not how Christ spreads his kingdom. 
He doesn't want the gospel falsely associated with some heretical offshoot of Judaism when Christ came to fulfill their law and their prophets and make Israel's hope of resurrection a reality. Right? Paul wants the message clear. He is in chains because people hate Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen. Not because He's doing anything wrong. I find 1 Peter helpful here in a couple of passages. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Or 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, don't suffer for the wrong reasons. Don't suffer for being a moron. Right? Rather, do what's right as a Christian, and if you suffer for that, rejoice, because you share in Christ's sufferings. Paul gives Felix a lesson in why he's suffering. He's not suffering because he's a troublemaker. He's suffering because they don't like him preaching the risen Lord Jesus. And so, Paul's vindication in Acts really becomes the gospel's vindication. We may have to defend our innocence because we don't want Christ's name with whom we are associated to be misunderstood or maligned. Sometimes that may include admitting your own wrongdoings, and I hope we're humble enough to to do that when we are being morons. But it may also include defending ourselves before those who accuse us of wrongdoing when no wrongdoing is present. Fourth, we must not compromise our prophetic witness for people in power. We must not compromise our prophetic witness for people in power. I love how Paul just turned the whole thing. Like, I'll tell you who's really on trial here, Felix. You, right? This guy with power. Christians, you know, we may feel really confident in teachings like There is no God except the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like justification by faith alone, or the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, or eternal punishment in hell for those who reject Christ. But you put some Christians in front of people in power, and people with money, people with influence, people who with a single word can determine whether you live or die, whether you go home to your family or remain in jail. And all of a sudden, they're backtracking. All of a sudden, that confidence in those truths of Christianity starts to wane. And the temptation in that moment is to flatter those in power. 
The temptation is to soften the teachings of Christianity. The temptation is to make the offense of the cross more palatable so you can just be friends. And for some of us, we don't even need people in power to feel that temptation. We fold before people who have no power. Felix Felix has the power to release Paul. Felix also has the power to put Paul to death if he wants to. And yet Paul doesn't hesitate to raise the offense of the cross even higher the longer he stays in prison. The longer he stays in prison. He kept speaking to him about self-righteousness, I mean about righteousness and self-control and judgment. When was the last time you talked to an unbeliever about righteousness? When was the last time you talked to an unbeliever about self-control? And when was the last time you talked to an unbeliever about the coming judgment? Yes, Jesus sat down and he ate with tax collectors and sinners. But he said things to them like, You're right to say, I have no husband. For you've had five, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. It's just piercing. A clear prophetic word that lays the heart to bear to their need for Jesus and his salvation. So don't compromise here, brothers and sisters. Christ is too glorious and hell is too awful to be silent. Consider how you might speak to someone you know about righteousness. This week, about self-control, about the coming judgment... And what God has done in Christ to save us and raise us to be with Him forever. We worship God and we fear Him above all. He will never leave us or forsake us. Therefore, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And finally, the resurrection compels us to live before God and man with a clear conscience. The resurrection compels us to live before God and man with a clear conscience. Notice the link Paul makes between verses 15 and 16. He says, Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always. I think the NASB is better here. In view of this, in view of this, 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 this resurrection of both the just and the unjust, I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Some of you don't have a clear conscience before God and man. Before God, your conscience is guilty. You've been far from His Word. You're not investing in his people. Perhaps you've grown apathetic in the fight of faith. You've trained your mind to love the world instead of righteousness. You lack self-control over your passions. Or your conscience bothers you because, because of the way you've treated other people. You've thought ill of them in, 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 but are unwilling to, to confess it. You've judged others before actually knowing them. Perhaps you've gossiped and spread falsehood or you've, you've just ignored them altogether instead of loving them. Don't let your conscience become seared. Okay? 
Rather, make this reality your meditation this week. God is going to raise you from the dead. God is going to raise you from the dead. And we will have to give an account to our risen Lord Jesus of the way we've spent our lives. He will stand before his throne and give an account. Jesus' eyes, Revelation says, are like flames of fire. 1 Corinthians says that he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and he will disclose the purposes of the heart. You may have fooled others, but you will not fool the risen Lord Jesus. So turn away from the choices that are dishonoring him and bow your knee to his will. To his will, Live before others and before God in a manner that fully pleases the Lord. If you don't, Daniel 12.2 says that you will rise to everlasting shame and contempt. But for those who live for Christ and treasure Him, you will rise to everlasting life and joy in His presence. So take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. The resurrection is coming, beloved. As somebody once put it, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's take the supper together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.